Hi, I'm Gio. And I'm Renee. And this is Listen To Me Podcast, where you get all the greatest and unqualified advice from qualified creatives. Basically, we go through it so that you don't have to figure out how to make all of your wildest virtual reality fantasies come true. <laughs> and I mean that in the most double entendre way possible. <laughs> double entendre. Double entendre. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a really special guest today. Yes, we do. Michael Hoppy. Who is Michael Hoppy, Gio? I met him through Christopher Pressey and Arthur Barbett through the Downtown Windsor Business Accelerator last year. I recently reconnected with him, I want to say a month and a half ago, two months ago. He had reached out for Geopogo. I'm Which sure is we'll... G-O-G-E-O. <laughs> yeah, not... like as in like geography, not as like <laughs> the geo. <laughs> or like, ge- like geography, geometro, like whatever. Like ge- oh, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like how people think it's funny to ask me if I've ever heard of Malosh Monax, which is an insurance company or something here. I've never heard that. Oh, it's yeah, it's, it's out West. Like, I think it's here and maybe also in BC. I had never heard it until I moved here either. And they're like, do you know Malosh Monax? Are you part of that? And I was like, if I were, would I be here right now talking to you? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a combination of different information, like different bits of information about you as one of my like logins for some account that I have. It's all like stuff about your name and your information, but mashed together. And it's like, that's, oh my yeah. God, you better cut this out. People are going to try to guess your password. <laughs> There's no way that they'll get it. <laughs> Absolutely no way. That is very funny. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to talk to Michael Hobby today. Let's get into it. Hey guys. Hi. Hello. Hey, I'm just gonna turn off the rest of my browsers. Get that like Wi-Fi flowing. Every guy that I know in IT who has 75 browser tabs open at once and calls it conservative. <laughs> that actually happened to me a couple of times because my when I was back in the office, I would like go ask the guys in IT for help uh-huh. with something and I'd like come up behind their computer and they'd literally have like 75 browser tabs open and I would be like why are there so many like it's giving me a headache and they'd be like this isn't even that many like why are you upset <laughs> there's nothing to be upset about what's crazy is when you find out how much ram chrome is taking up like video games most games don't even use this much ram I'm like <laughs> <laughs> no yeah I heard that uh, the redesigned internet edge was supposed to be better even though I don't know if that's a controversial opinion. Yeah, it depends how much data they're taking. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, same. How was your day today? It's good. We got uh, some pretty good plans this week. Just rolling some stuff out. So hopefully it works. Thank you so much for coming and doing this. I am really excited to talk to you today about your story and how you got to where you are today. Because I think that it's this is a new thing for us to bring on somebody who is more in the tech sphere, but is also very much, I would consider a creative pursuit. You know, I find that conversations like these even help open up the creative juices even more. And just like let your hair down and like talk and therapeutic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man, Gio and I both put our hair up. Mistake. Yeah. Mistake. <laughs> I'm sure yours is under your hat. So I think we're all in, we're all in a good place. <laughs> I want to start with your early life like where were you born where where did you grow up 
Okay, so I was born in Vancouver, and then I lived in a little town called Chilliwack. Yeah, I'd say very early in my uh, childhood, like farm kid, we had sheep. I have a question. Did you call it the whack? Because that's what my friend calls it, and I didn't believe her. I was like, <laughs> I don't think anyone else does. I think it's just you. No, that is uh, that's a thing. That's <laughs> is it really? Oh, my God. <laughs> There's, I remember as a kid, there was... I was in this like little sliver called Greendale. So like going into Chilliwack or like going into town. Mm-hmm. If you... <laughs> it's, like <a> thing. <laughs> it's like it being an Essex kid going to Windsor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Going into town and, you know, going to pick up some stuff, going to the mall. We had um, the cutest little grade school. You know, I could like bike there. Or there was even school bus that would like pick you up. But it was all a bunch of farm kids and play in the fields. And we'd climb over fences and eat blueberries, strawberries and whatever else the farmers had growing and (laughs) that sounds real country compared to how i grew up (laughs) that's because geo lived in a mansion in the country which is a little bit different (laughs) all right read me read me to (laughs) film it was the 90s so we did have the rich kid or the rich kids in the village i guess you could say um one of them you know he came from a town called surrey and, and they had i guess at the time it'd be like those tube tv like the really big tvs I don't know what you, projector TVs, I guess you would call them. We all had these like kind of weird box TVs with the antennas. Well, he had satellite. And oh, yeah. yeah. So this is like, I don't know, 97 or something, 98. And he had satellite. And, um, and we all went over after school to watch Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> we, we couldn't watch the final. It was like, I don't know if this means anything to you guys, but like the freezer battle, like the yeah, final. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. final freezer battle. And it lasted forever. <laughs> it just wouldn't end. But like we were kids, so we were like totally down with it. We're like, he's making a, um, whatever that atom or whatever he is, the bomb he was making. The atom bomb or something? There it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the atom bomb. And yeah. you know, looking back on that as an adult, I was like, who just lets that happen? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Dragon Ball Z was intense. That was wild. It was just like five episodes of the same 30 frames repeated and cut together, like of them being in a standoff. Yeah. And then, so do you uh, bring any of Dragon Ball Z into your work today or? <laughs> <laughs> I think I should. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. formative. Well, they got the art right. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, I'd say little things like that, like very innocent childhood, I'll say. Like we'd run into the fields and chase the sheep. We'd start a stampede. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure um, you know animal activists would like freak out. But I was like, hey, we're kids. Like and, maybe uh, the sheep wanted to stampede. Yeah, and, and then we go climb in a tree and just kind of watch them all go nuts. My doggos, come here, buddy. <laughs> My dog Simba, he like cannot handle things happening without his like being. <laughs> his input. Can we he say hi to Simba? Yeah. Yeah, he must be here. Hold on. Simba, come here, bud. Simba. Here, wait. How do I do this? There he is. Simba. Hi, Simba. Hi. What <laughs> so boy. cute. Oh, no. Oh, no. My dogs. Uh-oh. They know. So your dogs are just like Simba. They want to be in on it now. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck, man? Like, why are you talking to some other dog? They're <laughs> so upset. Come here, Chijin. Come here. They have to go secure the perimeter. <laughs> i feel like the friend who all their friends got married and have kids and i'm the one that's like the single like girl that's like okay <laughs> <laughs> you're like your kids are really cute in the way that they puke on themselves yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did you end up coming to windsor so i actually we moved back and forth 
across the country multiple times. The final time was grade eight. So when I, when I came to Windsor, you know, it was all Detroit radio. Uh, yeah, for people who don't know, Windsor's really close to Detroit. It's a border city. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, Detroit has the best radio in the world. Oh, yeah. I've driven across both countries, like U.S. and Canada, and it is just dry. Even L.A.'s got the driest radio you can imagine. I was driving back one time across all of Canada from, like, uh, literally Vancouver to Windsor. And just uh, Moose FM or, you know, you know, just things like this, like Radio Canada. And it just sucked. I was like, oh, my God. And then you start coming down into Chatham and you pick up Detroit Radio. And then all you hear is like, oh, the greatest hits. And like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> oh, man. When you were in high school and were you always a tech kid? Because like everything that I've read about you and that we've interacted on has always been in that sphere. No, I wouldn't say I was a tech kid by any means. Like, I played sports. Mm-hmm. I think architecture has always been my thing, whether it's like making buildings or modeling buildings or, you know, just doing something with buildings. That, that's always been my thing. And it just happened that applying technology to architecture is quite a pretty good calling. I mean, at least where I could personally make an impact and not so much trying to do something that, you know, doesn't flow or jive with me, like trying to force myself to become like a programmer or something. The role I'm in right now really works quite well where it's more of like, how do you make great experiences or how do you make programs or platforms that provide a great experience or outcome that's significantly um, different, you could say. Yeah, because there's so much out there right now that all the different experiences that people are being given, it's nuts. And it's like, what is actually connecting with people these days? That's a tough one because when you really start delving into markets and market personas and you break people into psychographics and you know what do people do on a common daily basis, it's very hard to break into what they already do. You know, one of the first learnings you'll come into is, you know, identify problems. Who's upset? That's kind of what you're going yeah. at. Who can't handle it anymore? Who's disgruntled? And, and that's kind of the way they teach you is like the disgruntled person is the one that's ready for change. But if you have no one that's disgruntled, then they're going to be very reluctant to change because everything's working. Whatever type of design you get into, you are solving a problem. Don't look at it as just an aesthetic approach. You're, you're solving someone's issue, whatever that looks like. Do you guys remember all those dance shows? Like, so you think you can dance or like mm-hmm. some of those singing shows? It's like the true ones that you could really pick out. Yes, they had a style, but they could also do jazz. They could do contemporary. They could do hip hop. They could do ballet. And, and that was kind of the point was that it wasn't necessarily about them. You know, it's about the viewer. It's about the audience. And you can be very opinionated about it saying like you need to be highly authentic but in this world when you're serving the market it's unfortunate but you do have to serve the market you can put your like unique spin or your unique signature on it but you gotta ultimately know how to play to what people want not necessarily what you want mike can you talk to us a little bit about siren your first business that was this the business that you left kind of the corporate world for right to start that was an interesting time because i had worked in architecture you, you put in uh, overtime, weekends, you know, that was years going by. Your first corporate job, you could say, is like your first love. Almost. <laughs> you know, they take advantage of that loyalty because you graduate, you know, they teach you everything. You have your first for everything and they take advantage of that respect. You know, when you're that young, you're also very naive. You don't really look at things with clear eyes. You know, there just came this moment. You know, there's a lot of personal things that happened around that time. It was like 2014. I was 24. You know, family members became sick and performance at work started to drop. And that's when I kind of noticed the corporate world's really in it for your production value. You know, I think people need to say, Hey guys, I need time. 
like I need some time to fix myself. I need some time to adjust, realign myself, and then I can come back and give you that 120%. But in Ontario, it's so much like, like yeah, it's oh, cutthroat. Yeah, you want three months off? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, basically work yourself to the to the grave. Yeah, I think that's common throughout, and it's also like to your point that if this is your first, if we're gonna go through the relationship analogy, you don't realize that you actually do have a choice and you can assert those boundaries because you're like, oh, I'm just grateful for what they're giving me. They're giving me this opportunity and I don't know anything else. It it was actually kind of funny. Um, So like, obviously my performance was dipping. Family's sick. Do I stay in Timmins? Do I leave? You know, where do I go? What do I do? And I get a call one morning in the office and you know, they bring me down, HR's there. They're like, "Uh, that's it, you're laid off. And I was like, oh, fuck. But at the same time, I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. like, what was really interesting, what irked me the wrong way was that the relationship was gone. It was cold. It, it was one of these, like, yeah, we're a small office firm, but you're not family. That that was an interesting wake-up call about the corporate world that you could be so close one minute, but once you're out the tribe, you're out the tribe. It's so interesting how there is, this was like this game where it's this, yeah, you know, you, you're, you're, you're one of us, like you're a part of the family, you're this, you're that. And then as soon as you kind of slightly sway and even like hint at if the fact that, you know, this isn't enough for me, it's like, bye. Well, that's that like commodity mindset, right? Is where these like corporations, they're like interested, as Mike said, in the production value of their employees. But the rhetoric of your family is what enables them to infringe on your time without Mm -hmm. compensation because you're like, oh, I'm so valued. Like they wouldn't ask me to do this if they didn't care about me as a person. That's not true. They are your employer. What I had done before that was more moonlighting. I designed a bunch of houses, which would piss the firm off. You know, they'd be like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. And I was like, oh, what are you gonna do about it? So I figured, well, let's just continue with that. You know, I designed a few homes and, and let's, uh, let's see if we can make a business out of that. But what we ended up creating in that time and and you got to remember winters in timmins are ferocious you're pretty much locked up for like 10 months (laughs) there's so much snow and it's so damn cold that you just kind of stay in the house all day and this really creative world just started to happen one of the first things we did and, and this happened to us sometime in high school and a little bit into college and then back again in the workforce people feel the need like they have to critique. They think they have to critique something. You show them something and their mind auto goes to critique. And and one of the rules we made was that whatever we created, there was no judgment allowed. So whether we painted something, wrote something, made poem, wrote, you know, a short book, designed a building, whatever we did, there was no judgment allowed. It was just pure feeling, emotion, creativity. And, And we also tore the house apart inside and rebuilt the whole thing at the same time <laughs> so was was siren like an artistic collective like can you say more yeah, you about say what that. it was yeah you could say siren was an artistic collective and that it we didn't care what was being made the end production was architecture but how that architecture was made we didn't care we wanted to break so far away from that corporate autocad Revit, this is how you do this this is what a floor plan is we want to break so far away from that that we didn't care if we let painting illustrate what you know it was or if a simple poem could describe the house sometimes we just sang or you know whatever we did to describe was was what we ultimately did and in the corporate world is especially in architecture you know from draftsman uh, junior intermediate senior product manager or project manager um, and then maybe architect you know you kind of go on this like little straight beeline mm-hmm. 
And I think it was really important for me because it seemed to shatter that entire projection of life. We almost did this like little beeline off the arc and, and just kind of jumped right back into our like adolescence or childhood, if you will. And tried to, you know, almost, you know, you're like 23 and you're like, oh, I feel like a teenager again. Make, create shit, who cares? Yeah, it was very, very artistic, creative time. We discovered there was a chimney in the house that was buried behind the walls. Oh, so we, that's cool. We blew the walls out to found the chimney, rebuilt everything, and then, you know, painted it red. And <laughs> <laughs> my business partner, he had a, a little bunny at the time and, and you know we couldn't handle the fact that the poor bunny lived in the cage so we let it just live in the house wherever it built its home we didn't care and it ended up finding a closet where it was like oh never hang out there and live in there I'm like okay that's your place <laughs> <laughs> people they tend to have this framework in their mind these boxes and it's like you get a rabbit rabbit lives in cage mm-hmm. or you get a dog mm-hmm. and the dog's leashed or you get um you know cat it lives in the house kind of thing we just wanted to shatter all frameworks before we even knew that frameworks existed we just wanted to dump it all in the garbage and start over again as if we never went to high school or something well it sounds like it really opened up your way of looking at things which i think is huge because it's the exact antithesis to that stagnation that happens where you're like in that rut literally it's because you've been riding the same path for so long right right exactly in the corporate world all you have is your mentors like you might have a friend or two who's slightly older than you maybe they're ready to like start a family or something and you just really only have them to look to say is that the right path or not to go to and i'm very happy that uh you know i kind of went the messy chaotic route Sometimes that's where you learn the most. You know how you're saying like, you know, you look to people externally from yourself. I really believe this. If we take a minute and just actually sit with ourselves, we know within ourselves, you're like, this doesn't feel right. Sometimes it just, it it takes that messy way to get there, but you still get there regardless. I, I always hate that, that gut instinct. When you go into a situation and you know, but I found that a good solution to that feeling is just to make a decision then to either say you're going to go with it or you're not, but you have to make a decision. And where that, where that feeling uh, lingers, like when you're stuck in limbo, is when you don't actually make a decision where you don't say, I'm going to stick with this or I'm not. You're committing. Gonna, more importantly, you also have the maturity to know and say, okay, it's concluded. Because I find in our early 20s, you know, no one taught us. That's really interesting. Well, we never were given those life skills to say, okay, I've, I've had enough. I can stop. And yeah. now that we're older, yeah, I see friends in my late 30s, they make that decision all the time. I, I want to go home, I want to leave the club, I'm done partying for the night, <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> you and I met at the Downtown Windsor Business Accelerator. How did you originally get linked up with them? After Timmins, I ended up moving back to Windsor and at the time, finding work in Windsor was quite the challenge. It's always been a challenge to find work in Windsor, but at that time it was especially difficult. Because of Siren, we had made some money doing house plans and you know working with people. So I, I came over to Windsor and I said, oh, could I do something similar? You know, I'd popped on a few firms and I was like, eh, I don't even know if I wanna get back into that kind of situation. I don't know how exactly it was I saw the accelerator because it's not like there was advertising or something but so- mm. something was there something caught my eye and I just decided to pop in I happened to be downtown that day anyways and that's when they were located downtown and I came in and I think I met Sadiq popped around the corner seeing what's happening and he's like yeah let me introduce you to Arthur so I went over to Arthur's office and I think we spoke for about 10 minutes and you know when you meet people and w- what's interesting about I mean Arthur have known each other for a long time but 
our relationship is pretty much the same from that moment we mm-hmm. first, like we understood each other from the moment we met that 10 minute conversation to who we are today it's super rare that you find people like that where you don't need to like have this discovery period or you know yeah i ne- i didn't stick in windsor I left, I, I moved to Vancouver, but I eventually ended up coming back. And that was the first place I went back to. And, uh, and then we started a uh, whole journey. Basically, it was like three solid years. I don't blame you for going back. Honestly, Arthur is such a visionary. When I met him for the first time, just his energy is so, he makes you believe even more in yourself than you thought you could instantly. Like, cause I, I moved back to Windsor and was very much like, I need that spark. I need that thing to, make me feel like I'm doing something right in my career because I just, you know, in, there wasn't a whole lot of resources like that in Windsor. Within five minutes, I was like, this guy, he sees what I can see, even right. though I've never met him before. He's very good at that. He holds like the glue of the accelerators that unrelentless drive forward. And I think that's something we all have where eventually you learn that you can't be afraid. No. You can't, you cannot be afraid if like incubators or startups or or whatever is your thing, there's no path. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. No one knows where the market's going to come from. Mm -mm. No one knows where the next unicorn's coming from. People say it's tech. It's probably not. It's probably something else. No one knows anything, to be honest. So it always frustrates me when you see people like, oh, these are the 10 steps to a great pitch deck. And that doesn't mean shit. It's do you have traction or do you not? Absolutely. Are you bringing in money? Do people care? And I feel bad because so many of these kids, they get trained that the whole point of a startup is to produce a pitch deck for some investor. Mm -hmm. And what's even worse in Windsor is these investors do not have capital or money that can produce anything sufficient. Mm -hmm. And I say that with conviction. Maybe here in the Valley, you could start a startup off a pitch deck or a white paper provided its concept is that high with the right connections, you probably will seed some money. But even then it's very rare because it goes back to, does anyone care? It really is. Like even when the lockdown happened and all these like business professionals who are like pivot this, do this, do that. I'm like, how do you, you're going through the exact same thing that we're all going through. How can you tell me what to do when you are literally like in the same sinking ship? It just made no sense to me. So if you already had started a business and then you were there, like, was it, would you say like it really helped push yourself forward as far as an entrepreneur is concerned? This is a good question. I I don't even think then we considered ourselves entrepreneurs by any means, but what happened was in Vancouver, we built a pretty good life, me and my boyfriend, you know, then he decides we're going to move to Europe. (laughs) This is when you move to Greece, eh? And my dogs. Were either of you from Greece or was it just like an arbitrary? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Before I met him, I would never have considered such a thing that I could just like pack up and go to Europe and go live in Athens or, you know, some small Greek village. Um, But that's exactly what we did. We just packed everything up. I drove back home to go see my family, you know, for a few days. And then uh, we met up in New York and then bam, we flew over to Europe just sell everything and go i swear to god (laughs) (laughs) he's a convert oh my gosh possibly to pantheistic hellenism we don't know (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you this about the greek people they're very alive they live to live it's similar to like spanish culture mexican culture life is just alive like i'm sure there's nine to fivers i'm sure there's a corporate culture somewhere in, in greece and athens but it seemed like the majority of the population was just alive They didn't care where they were at 2 p.m., 3 p.m., 9 p.m., midnight. 
four in the morning. Just people did not seem to care what was happening at the time. And what ended up happening for us was time disappeared. There day, I didn't, couldn't tell you sometimes if it was Thursday or Sunday or Monday. Um, and you were still working at this point? Our rule was no job, no bills. You, they could, couldn't have any debt, nothing like this. All had to be paid off. And we just went and existed. That's huge. But it's bears acknowledging that it's a huge privilege too, right? Like a lot of people, yeah, don't get that opportunity because they got to work. And we took this really opportune moment where we happened to have paid off any debt we had, like if it happened to be like credit card debt or something, we happened to have paid it off. We had a bit of money in the bank and we said, now, do it now. It's interesting too. I feel like both of you had dialed into topics that I covered in my therapy session today. <laughs> Are you guys <laughs> listening? Uh, but I talked to my therapist about this because my dad died last year and that was huge. Like he was a, like a hardworking blue collar man from Essex County. And his whole thing was like, I'm going to work until I'm dead or I retire. And he died instead of retiring. So he never got to do most of the stuff that he wanted to do because he was saving for some day in the future that ultimately didn't exist. Can you talk a little bit about what the Business Accelerator is and kind of like what it offered you when you went and had your first, what do we call that, Kai Kai with Arthur, Kiki? The, the practical answer, I think, how they all saw themselves, not just the accelerator, but all, all incubators is like space and desk and internet, mm -hmm. connections with resources, people, like-minded people. You're in literally a building with 30 to 40 other companies and startups, which is really great because you could connect resources. Everybody was there in front of you. If you didn't have that space, the chances of you getting a small office, let's say with some type of commercial landlord, is probably pretty slim to none. Mm -hmm. because, um, the accelerator is very affordable, especially for a desk. Just everything. It was a full business resource. And you were not getting that if you went and tried to get a commercial landlord to set you up, let's say. You'd just be put in a box in a room somewhere by yourself, and, and that would kind of be it. What I find the more real, the more, you could say, the inspirational side was the family. Everybody became family because we all understood collectively what we were going through. Nobody was pretending like, you know, business in Windsor was hot or even that any of us really had clients in Windsor. I think most people had clients everywhere else but Windsor. It was an unfortunate reality, but, you know, it, it was the truth for a large part it, because you had periods where things were hot. Money was coming in, checks were good, and then you had dips. It was just these little ups and downs, up and down, up and down. And, you know, over three years, you get some pretty dark periods. Out here in, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, it's scalability or nothing. You know, your aim is to build products that either infinitely sell or infinitely scale. In Windsor, not only were we not, let's say, taught this, though you can't expect anybody to teach you that, but we didn't have the resources to do such things. To build a scalable product is, uh, you need engineers, you need teams, you need departments. That's no simple task. We're all stuck in service. For us, it was drafting, renderings, selling services, design services. And, you know, when there were a lot of clients, yeah, business boomed. And when there weren't, business went down. And, and there was a lot of people that made websites, same thing. But we carried each other through those moments. And I'll say the drama, there was a lot of good drama. <laughs> <laughs> drama carries everyone through it all. And you need a community like that. If you're stuck in a office alone, you'll fold and cave. But when you're with a community and a family and things are 
you know, not that things have to be hard collectively for everybody. Maybe for some people it's hot and others it's not, but you help each other. People say, Hey, I got some ideas for you. Why don't you try this or talk to this? Here's a connection here. And that's ultimately how we got everybody through it all. We wanted to get to that point where we said, Hey, we don't want to be stuck drafting all day. We want to do cool VR stuff. We want to do cool rendering stuff. And we got to find clients for it. We got to make a business case. We got to differentiate. When you just start for the first time, or for me, second time, you don't know those things. You don't necessarily know how all those elements, like a giant puzzle piece, come and click and play together. Yeah, I can compare that to like production versus actual design, where you're looking at like a production designer where, you know, when you're, you're new and you, you don't know any better, you're like, well, I'm just, you're making it, you're creating it, but you're not really conceptualizing it. And then when you get to that, you, as you grow and you're like, this is, this is what I actually want to be doing. I don't want to be putting it together. Like that's just not, it's not enough for me. It's I'm not getting enough out of it. So how did you go from Windsor to San Francisco? You took a plane. <laughs> <laughs> a to B, A to B. It, actually, it's a very long story. Uh, I'll say this in short. I, I've always lived, I'll say two lives, at some points, maybe three. Especially the contrast between even San Francisco and Windsor are quite striking. When I come back home, it's it's a very different place and time than the last time I left it. Oh, yeah. There comes a point, and I think a lot of it, you know, is my relationship. And, and that big question was with the relationship, are we, same thing with Vancouver, are we doing this or not? Are we making this happen? When I came back to Windsor, one of the previous times before I moved to Vancouver, I worked for this insurance restoration company. We talk every day on the phone. Me and my boyfriend, you know, are we doing this? Are we doing this? And I remember it came to the point where I was like, are you going to do this? Like, like how long are we going to talk about this after work every day? And, and finally I said, fuck it. I was like, make a decision right now. You either get up, quit and leave and, and fly out to Vancouver, or you stop this game and you just suck it up and stay here. But you have to make your decision right now. And that's what I, talking back to originally when we began that gut feeling, where you got to make a decision or else you're going to keep having that stupid feeling. And I sat there and I got up, walked over to my manager and I said, I'm quit. And he's like, right now? And I'm like, yeah, I got to leave. Like right now, you know, and your heart starts pounding. So you're like, no yeah, shit, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Like, I'm not, there's no two weeks. I'm not fucking around. Like, like I'm not going to prolong the pain. Like, I'm just, let's rip the bandaid off and get it done with. And of course they freak out and like, wait, 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 we got to do an exit interview and all this stuff. So I'm like, yeah, yeah whatever. And, and then they had me sneak out the back. So other people wouldn't see very disruptive. Yeah, but you like, just to bring it back to what you were saying about like the corporate culture, that's like such a thing, man. It's like, they want to be like, create this illusion of like total control. Nothing happens that's not on schedule, not planned for, not accounted for. You know, after that, bought a ticket, flew out. And San Francisco was no, it, it, it's definitely a much bigger story. I, I've packed my life in a suitcase more times than I can count and cross that border more times than I can count. And I just took a ton of fucking risks. And, and also the decision, am I gonna make this relationship work or am I gonna have it draw? And San Francisco, especially with the work I was doing, it started bordering on tech at the time. I had a lot of great ideas. I was doing a lot of great things in VR that you know no one in Windsor cared about. So you moved there for your relationship, but when you got there, taking everything that you had kind of built up into that point, as far as your experience, where did you kind of inject yourself into San Francisco to get to where you are today? Like, how did that even happen? In California, in San Francisco, there was a startup called Upload. And Upload was like this VR enthusiast world where you could come and create VR experiences. They set up whole computers. They had VR all established. And 
at the time, VR is not what it was today. VR, you needed like 30 cables, RTX video cards, <laughs> or an insanely powerful computer tower with 600 megahertz of power, however they clock it. So doing VR was nothing simply. You really needed some serious setup. And Upload was one of those places. People who were into emerging tech. And again, it was another family. It was another family like the Accelerator, just hyper-niched. So instead of like somebody's in accounting, somebody's in video production or basketball or, you know, whatever, you know, websites, whatever, we're all at the Accelerator being this diverse community. Upload was all pure tech. VR and, and then eventually AR. And, and you just had these like hyper enthusiasts, like people that were insane and people that were like raising two, three million dollars. Holy shit. For their Holy ideas. Shit. So for me at the time, you know, coming from Windsor, you know, when we go and pitch at Angel, Windsor Angels, you know, you'd be lucky if you asked for 25, 50 grand. In the Bay, it was like, you know, that time it was hot. So it was like million, three million dollars for your startup. And, and it was so amazing to be around people like that. The possibilities and the potentials are absolutely endless. And nobody wants to think on small terms. Everyone's like, how do you cash in for the big time? Everybody wants to be a unicorn. The brilliance and the beauty of the Bay Area is that not only does everyone believe it's anybody's game, but it's really truly anybody's game. You know, just because you're a CEO of a company doesn't mean one of your project managers is not going to steal something proprietary piece of code that they're going to take and get bought by Google. Like these things happen all over the places. And yes, there's stories that happen rarely, but they do happen. You know, this is a place where it's like dream or don't. It seems so cutthroat, you know, being outside of that area. Like I don't, we obviously don't live there, but you hear so much about the Bay Area and how it's very competitive. The way you're making it sound is like it's competitive, but it's also very collaborative. It's collaborative because everybody wants a piece. Because if you get five, ten percent of a startup that makes it, yeah, you're you know, set up. You're, you're set up, and mm -hmm. it's not that you want one of them; you want many of them. And it was the first time I had ever seen groups of people come together from different talents. Somebody might have been an art director, an animator, a programmer. Um, uh, somebody who could do VR, AR, and coders all come together and everybody would all do one very specific, where's my camera here? One specific part of the puzzle. Somebody did the business plan, somebody did the marketing, somebody did the product, somebody did the coding, and you had this wheel and people didn't get hellbent on specifics. It was launch to market as quickly as possible. And this was the beautiful part. This is what I really loved. Find out if it works as soon as possible. If it doesn't, it's okay. Cut your losses, get out and do it again. And, and that was so beautiful because Windsor, everything was so personal and everything was so drawn out. Nobody wanted to hear nothing, no ideas from nobody. I, I can't tell you the number of startups I've seen die in Windsor, drag out and die. Horrible, painful deaths that did not need to. <laughs> all, all because the founders refused to let go. If something isn't working, you know, and Renee and I have talked about this before, move on. If it keeps spinning, but it's not actually getting any traction, there's a reason for it. But you can get caught up in the story and you can get caught up in believing that the story is going to magically out and it's going to be this happy ending, you, you could suppose. Though I do personally truly believe that. Sometimes you need a clear head. You need a clear mind. And, and, and it's not that you have to kill the startup. You don't have to ever, it's a really nasty situation. You know, people are fighting, people hate each other. Um, there's no reason to keep that going, but there's nothing wrong with killing the project in the startup. There's nothing wrong with killing the direction. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, this path isn't working. Let's stop it in its gears, take a break, breathe and revamp. Mm -hmm. In the Valley, it, it was really beautiful. 
it, it really opened my eyes to how people come together. And this was the beautiful part. They come together for the end payout. And I find that's really hard for people to understand. Like there's a couple of startups in Windsor right now and they're trying to attract talent. And I was like, well, you got to pay me 25 bucks an hour to come on. And I get it. Everybody wants to be paid, but that's not how you make a billion dollar company. It's so true. Every startup needs a group of hustlers that's going to hustle in their direction on their play, on their pin of the wheel. So speaking of grouping hustlers together, let's take a moment to talk about how you and I actually are now in some way connected through a startup, Geopogo. Talk a little bit about what Geopogo is and how you became part of the team originally. Geopogo is Dave's, and you met Dave, you interviewed yep. him. Geopogo is Dave's vision on how architecture can be made more inclusive and more widespread to basically the population. You know, architecture is an institution and it's an institution that requires training, not just on how to architect, if you will, but the software and everything else that's involved with it. And our whole ethos is you don't need to learn software, know how to create ideas. Every great startup, no matter what field it's in, that's what they do. They disrupt institutions. They change behaviors. They give power to one group of people or another. And that's what Geopogo aims to do. Ultimately, if we write a program where you get in and design your own house and it's fucking killer and you love it and you share it with everybody and you get it built, then Geopogo's won. It's done its job. Yeah. Um, if somebody enthusiastic about some municipal project like a hospital or something else and they design a better vision and they can present it to the public and circumvent that old municipal institution, Geopogo's won. So you're talking about essentially creating a software that makes it more accessible for people. And that has a really interesting implication, especially for specialized buildings, because it opens up sort of a different range of expertise and knowledge, right? So like you were saying, if you have somebody who's actually in a hospital administration or even another health professional who's had ideas about how an optimal layout of a hospital bay would look, and they can't translate that because there's too many, you know what I mean? It becomes like a game of telephone when you're trying to explain your idea you can't articulate it somebody's receiving it and then trying to pass it on it eliminates those barriers so that person has immediate access to be like this is what i'm envisioning and i can show you in a virtual reality context that's what we found is it was interesting we we got this very nice contract with one of the tech companies down in silicon valley and their executive teams and a few others through two days of AR tours. And we used the AR headsets. We digitally projected the whole facility for them. And we took them on tours where they could actually see the whole facility as if it was actually built. What's the difference between, just for people who don't know this, who aren't tech savvy. So VR is virtual reality, AR is augmented reality. So what's the difference? That's right. So VR is in isolation. So you put a headset on, you're completely blacked out, and then a virtual world will cast in front of you. AR is just a digital overlay on top of the world. So you could be in your backyard, use your phone, tablet, or an AR headset, and you could go and project a shed, a pool, a greenhouse, whatever you want. Or a even Charizard. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you will see it as if it was there, ultimately, let's just say. And that is very, very powerful because it play around with our reality and mess with it and change things. Just like all technology, it'll come to this really beautiful place of prominence when you wear a pair of augmented glasses. 
whether, um, you know, like what you're wearing or sunglasses or just something, even safety glasses, when that's augmented um, or contact lenses or even just the AR headsets from uh, Magic Leap or Microsoft or um, whatever Apple comes out with, these can be very, very powerful devices that are going to do some great things. One of the things that you talk about a lot is evolving the human experience in one way or another. And I find like you say, you know, we must build a better world. You're always looking for progress to move, move the narrative forward as far as how we interact with humanity, how we interact with the world, how we interact with each other. How do you see Geopogo as part of that solution? Whether it's Geopogo that solves that or solves a sliver of it, we'll come to find out. What I'm coming to learn, and I'm reading this really great book called Factfulness, which you should read. It's data. Data will dramatically transform this planet. But what's really happening is it's not that data that you're being given. It's not telling you how many people are sick or dying from COVID related to tuberculosis or some other disease. It's data that's telling you how you're living your life and how you can live your life better. If you don't drink a glass of water every day, you're going to start getting uh, wrinkles or something. It, it's data like that that's really have a transformative effect on our lives because the algorithms will become smart. They're the ones that predict the future. It's our behaviors that predict our futures. Yeah. We literally do the same things every single day. And if you're on a really bad behavior pattern, you're going to have some bad outcomes. That's really interesting to me because it makes me think of the, this thing that I see, like it's like a meme template now of people being like, oh, your phone is listening to you or like Alexa's listening to you. And I'm like, understand that when you engage with social media, you're giving permission for them to mine your application for data. And we are creatures of habit. So all of the things that you're interacting with online, that's what's informing the ad choices. Nobody has to listen to you because you're just doing the same shit over and over right. and they're using that for money. Like. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things is that we don't have all this happens so fast, like 10, like all within 10 years. Oh yeah. Well, even you talking about like 2014, 2016, I'm like, my God, that was like 35 years ago. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? There's not enough history to tell the right stories to each other about what's happening. And we see it in our parents. They don't, they don't know any of it. They don't, you know, even Facebook, you know, we're the ones that adopted it. So we get it. And so when we see um, memes or we see political news or fake news, if you will, you know, we're better able to spot it or just dismiss it altogether because yeah. we knew Facebook when it was ours. Yeah, and the landscape of the internet is so different and it bears talking about. I uh, was an early adopter of Tumblr.com, which yes. Yahoo famously bought for a pittance. Like, I think they lost money when they sold it also. I, I just want to paint this funny picture. Yahoo bought it? Yeah. They clearly didn't know. And, and they must have been like, oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, basically that is what happened. And then they <laughs> sold it at a loss. But like... Tumblr is one of the only sites, social media sites that you can relatively still customize and you don't have to fight the algorithms that they've programmed into it to interact with sort of like the user base or the, the user base that you cultivate, your friends, your followers and stuff like that. And they were talking, somebody on there uh, was talking yep. about how we haven't seen that since like MySpace. Because mm -hmm. when we started getting on the internet, it was all about customization, right? It wasn't about like this sort of structural template that you could maybe do a little bit on, but ultimately it would be like the same thing over and over in terms of social media 
media, it was like, you're literally building like GeoCities pages. You're like <laughs> doing your MySpace thing, forcing people to listen to your horrible taste in music just to come see your <laughs> stuff. Like <laughs> it's very different. It's a very different tech landscape. You know what? There was even, I remember in high school before Facebook or even MySpace, there was a website called Pixo and that let you make your own website ultimately. It, but we didn't make it to make websites. It was kind of, it, it was MySpace before your MySpace. <laughs> yeah. You put a bunch of stuff, up, like friends who had them, they would put like music videos of like 50 Cent or whatever was <laughs> popular at the time. And yeah. Or yeah. I remember my, I wish I could, they're all gone now. It's all like thrown in the internet's trash. And, and, you know, that was back in like 2000, uh, I guess, 15 or 14, actually, actually no less. 500 years <laughs> ago in 2007 when I was spray and didn't have so many freaking white hairs. Mike, to bring it back, maybe you can talk about what need Geopogo is answering in the building industry? It's a very sober answer. And you know, what's really brilliant about making a company is truthfully, you make everything up. You know, even when you identify problems, it, it doesn't mean that your solution is like a direct answer to that direct specific problem. Nobody's ever that good. Yeah. It, it's a little bit of blending of, you know, my vision for how I would like to see architectural software unfold with, of course, the reality that if you're gonna make it in the enterprise world, you have to solve enterprise problems. We thought for a long time, and, and there's been a casualties on this journey. Um, the first casualty was that you could reinvent BIM. And, and so what that means is you would reinvent Autodesk and Revit and you know mm -hmm. all these programs. The truth of that is that these are 30 year software. It's like trying to recreate um, Photoshop or Premiere. You got you to gotta do it fucking well. 10 times better or nothing. Even if you're nine times better, it's, it's not good enough. And so we went down this path and, and, and some others have followed in the same regards where they said, oh, we're going to recreate Autodesk 2 and, you know, and, and we're going to drawings and you know, we're going to make architects' lives 10 times better. Seldom ever works out and the amount of capital you need is ridiculous. Um, and the hope you really have is that Autodesk will buy you before um, you know, such a program dares enter the market, in which case they'll just kill it. Yeah. Um, so that was the first path. That was a difficult one. That one's really hard. Now we still have a dream for our own creator tools, I'll call it, where you could go in and like create your own house in five minutes. It's all pre-rendered. You can do furniture from Ikea, you have lighting, and then you can go and air it online and have all your friends run through your design and you can send it to your contractor and say, build this house for me. That one's harder than it looks. And, and I realized it really, really quickly where I was like, oh, fuck, if we're going to really jump into this one, this is going to be a toughie. Plus, it's saturated. There's a lot of people trying to attack that problem. So when you have saturation like that, it's really hard to differentiate um, because you're not a big fish in a little pond. You're just a shit ton of little fish. You know, all of a sudden you need like some gold flecks or um, what do you call the specs? You need gold specs on you and maybe a diamond or two so that you catch somebody's eye. But very, very challenging and a lot of engine time work. And of course, consumers are very cheap. <laughs> There's a little equation I created. And so in that case, in the equation, it doesn't work. To balance the equation out, you either need a lot of capital or a fuck ton of early adopters. By 
a fuck ton, I mean like 100,000, 200,000 early adopters mm-hmm. to really bring it to a place where either Home Depot, Lowe's, or Ikea pay attention, and then they'll just buy it. For an early startup, very, very difficult thing to do. So the second one we figured was augmented reality. And we started with Magic Leap, which is the AR headsets. And what we really quickly discovered, though we have great success, was people do not like putting headsets on. That was a tough one. That's a very tough human behavior, getting people to put headsets on. And, and that was whether it was VR, you know, when people put on the Oculus for the Rift, you had a very small portion of the population that would actually do it on a common daily basis. Even within the gamer community, you know, you might have a large gamer pool, but smaller VR pool. And then when you take that VR pool, you know, you're very naive if you think, oh, well, I'm going to capture, you know, the VR crew of this, you know, 10%. No, you're going to get like 0.005% of that pool. If the hardware has made it to the mainstream, get away from it. Of course, at the time, you don't know that. You're just mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, of course, everyone's going to want an Oculus Rift in their living room. Why wouldn't they? Um, <laughs> that's not what I... I actually do know that because my husband is such a gamer. <laughs> well, I even started noticing it too when, you know, the VR headset started collecting. I was like, fuck, I don't think this is uh, I, I can't keep telling investors that, you know, this market's hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly cooled down. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting um, because you're so kind then, of speaking to this thing that people might not be aware of, which is that just because the technical, the technology exists, exists no. doesn't mean that it will take off in the way that you expect. You know, going back to that original, you have to let it die. Right. There's still VR players who are going very gung-ho. And I have a lot of friends here in San Francisco that are trying to make VR work. But the ultimate truth is that, you know, if, if you're looking for that big industry, VR is not going to work. If you could support a fan base of a thousand, yeah, sure. VR will work just fine for you. And if that's what you want, that's what you want. That's great. You know, ultimately its cap has, has hit and VR might make its fourth wave. Yeah, it's fourth wave. VR is going to have its fourth wave in probably mid-2025, 26. And that's probably when VR and AR combined into one. And then Apple's probably done something and it's cool and fashionable. And that's when you'll see the next wave and, and a whole mile of entrepreneurs jumping on to basically develop programs for VR. So we jumped into AR and that was Magic Leap. So Magic Leap came up. They were the new kids on the block very hot technology, um, very hot conversation. Startups were getting funded for developing programs and Magic Leap was developing applications for them as well. What we've learned, so again, people don't like putting headsets on, number one. Number two, the consumer mindset and the consumer brain is not allowed to think. Consumers do not think. We think consumers think and we think we think when we're consumers, but we don't. We just look at cost-benefit analysis, and we also look at instant gratification. So how much money am I shoving out for how much um, serotonin am I going to release is, ult- is the ultimately the equation. The truth and the trouble with the magic leap was the equation was off balance. It was too expensive and the serotonin release was too delayed. If you would put it in like those kind of terms, it can be something down to the look of the device doesn't look cool. In this case, magic leap made it quirky to stand out. It turned out that contractors don't like looking quirky. God, our monkey brains. (laughs) Well, they want to look cool. They want to look cool in front of their. uh, I'm just trying to get better internet. You know, you have the right idea. I'm sorry. You're fucking drinking wine. Like I'm here sitting with water. Like I know, me too. (laughs) I thought we were doing like the Joe Rogan experience. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm not a dude enough to listen to that shit. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it gets so dudely. I'm like, I can't listen to this. It's too much. <laughs> it gets so dudely. I actually dudely, really like yeah, that. It's, it's so dudely. <laughs> so you were, okay. So you talked about Magic Leap and how Magic Leap died because the headsets were too quirky, first of all, which is really funny to me because now I'm thinking kind of about like the evolution of cell phones almost. And that I think would be like maybe a good analogy to have, right? Because initially when cell phones were emergent, like the technology was there, but it didn't quite pick up, right? Like right away, because there were entries to like barriers to entry for cost. And then also, as you said, like there weren't as many consumers who were willing to to jump on it in order to like kind of offset those initial costs in that way, like consumer interest. They couldn't cross the chasm in that respect. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even cell phones, it took, you know, cell phones started emerging in the late 80s yeah. um, into the 90s. But like, you know, our generation didn't get them until it was high school. Yeah. Um, may have been grade 11 that our parents, our parents would either give us one of their cell phones. But if you actually had like your own cell phone, like that didn't really come until grade 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there was a lot of things that had to happen for that to happen that we didn't necessarily pay attention to. Yep. You know, and, and that's all technology. We look at cell phones, it took 30 years for 85, 90% of the world's population to get a cell phone. Yep. Uh, my phone's going off right now. <laughs> I know. This is not an Apple ad, by the way. We're not getting compensated. So I feel like maybe we should send an email to whoever. <laughs> <laughs> like it sounds so ignorant whoever replaced steve jobs i know that he's dead now r.i.p uh, so you know ar is going to go through that same thing and when we took a lot of gambles you know we did ar with the magic leaps we, we did some really great projects with the same thing early adopters you know we worked with some really big tech companies down in the bay you know we, we were flown out to new york and brooklyn to go do like whole city blocks like really really crazy stuff and Um, But it dawned on me that that's a very specific behavior, that that behavior of the actions that we did is highly unique. And to turn that into a enterprise or consumer product is a highly difficult, complex thing. And, And it fits a formula. Consumers can't handle more than three clicks. Enterprise certainly cannot handle a set of brand new functions without being trained. So unless you have some type of training apparatus involved, not going to happen either. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that, but then the the great barrier is not that you're stuck giving off value propositions because you can spit value props all day, especially in enterprise. You know, does this save me time and does this save me money? The answer is yes on respects. But what ends up getting lost is that the story that you end up telling doesn't match the story that people already tell themselves or how they do their business. And so that's a very challenging thing. So yes, AR can have great opportunity for whoever adopts it, but architects have been doing business the way they've been doing it since their careers, you know, especially some of the older guys who've been doing it for 50 years. Um, You're not going to get them on new technology. I mean, shit, they barely even use 3D right now as it is. Mm -hmm. And then the younger guys, yes, they're interested, but they don't have the political weight to go ahead and actually move full emerging technology adoption. Now, you can get lucky where you find firms that truly understand that technology adoption can differentiate them and bring them into the future. There are firms that understand this, but then the competition is fierce. 
really, really fierce and you got to be really, really good. And the formula you present has got to be on point, not only in application, but on a lot of superficial things. Are the graphics hot? Are they the best graphics? Is it Unreal Engine 5 graphics? Is it like, oh, I swear to God. It's- yeah, I know. And it's back to that like monkey brain of like, does it look shiny? Is it yeah, the it shiniest shiny? Like- it's got to be shiny. It's got to <laughs> be shiny. And you know, that's really disappointed me, but it's the truth. It, it's, it's all the senses. Do you hit the mark on the senses in the right ways? Do the sounds ping to the ears? Do you have mm-hmm. that ring yeah. in it? Does it sparkle for the eyes? Not for the brain, but for the eyes. That is wild. And it really upset me. It made me very mad. Even during pitching, you know, we, we, we've presented more times to investors and pitch events than I can count. And, you know, they want a very constructed story and the same story. They want the same story that every other startup has ever presented in front of them, though they're bored of the story. They want the same one because it's one they understand and, and they want it delivered with a certain vibrato with a certain, you know, charismatic edge. Okay, so if we're going to wrap it up and we're going to talk about the path you see for Geopogo's success and how that ties into your own success. Here's where we're at right now. So, you know, everything we talked about, you know, we built cell phone AR, like you can use Geopogo right now. You can design something, you can go and project it with your phone and show it to your friends and family. We, we ended up learning too that that's a difficult behavior because that's not a behavior you actively engage in on your phone. Phones are really great for scrolling. The whole of phone like this is actually quite a chore. It's not easy to hold a phone like this, um, nor is it common behavior. So again, formula, you know, dumps out. I, I think that what's going to happen and this is Geopogo's next place. Number one, we are uh, stepping up the graphics. We've dumped into an HD, it's called an HDRP render pipeline, um, which is going to produce some really spectacular graphics for the engine. The second one is we've started experimenting and building into multiplayer architecture. So AutoCAD and Autodesk, all, all of this you build in isolation. Mm-hmm. All of it. You're all by yourself, everything's silent. And if I want to share my design with you, I either send you images, PDFs, very static kind of things. Yep. And so what we're imagining, actually what we're building and basically finished, pure multiplayer experience for architecture. It's going to be, it's, that's it's cool. Be really, yeah. Cause I, that. yeah. Cause um, there's I mean, a more live collaborative, collaborative aspect to that. Right. Um, especially when you put in all the elements that bring architecture to life and, and, and it's the sounds you hear, it's the things you see, if there's fire, it's burning, it's crackling. If there's lights, maybe they're flickering. Um, it, it's all the elements like that, that really help bring things to life and tell a visual story. How we're going to be branding Geopogo after that is basically this live collaborative world where you can come in and create and share and express your ideas with everybody right on your computer. Mm-hmm. No phones, no tablets, no magic leaps. You can still do those things if you want to, but the mainstay, and again, this goes back to the story, the narrative we all tell ourselves and look at the devices we're on right now, we're on our computers. Yes. This yeah. is a very easy narrative to sell. 
we're very good at these things. We can use keyboard and mice and we've all played some form of multiplayer game, <laughs> especially our generation. Our generation mm -hmm. is truly plugged into it. The next key piece of magic is the target audience. So everybody jumps in and they says, well, who's your target audience? And, you know, a novice will say, well, it's architecture and construction firms. No, this isn't good enough. You got to get deep into the psychographic. You literally have to pick, is it males or is it females? Is it males 28 to 35? Is it females in the same age category? What position in life are they in? What position in um, their careers are they in? Where are they about to transition? Are they going from intermediate into senior draftsman's role? How much political power do they have in the firms to actually adopt and bring in the technology across a whole firm because you're not going to sell to the seniors. You're not going to sell right. to the principals. You're going to sell to the draftsmen. It matters who that person is, who is the archetype. That is very, very important. And, and more importantly, what stage in their careers are they at? It's very important. And, and companies target us like this every single day. We don't necessarily realize it. Yeah. Even what you were saying about like a person picking up a phone to do what GeoPogo is designed to do. I was like, yeah, how many people who have smartphones, because you just talked about how like 80, 90% of the population have smartphones, think about their phone as a creation tool. Very right. few. It's just yeah. something that you passively interact with or you use to, you know, like see that you're receiving a phone call and then ignore it so it will go to voicemail because we're millennials and we don't answer calls. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> people classically say the no-brainers like, oh, you know, people have an aha moment. Oh, my phone's a creation tool. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the story because we don't tell ourselves that story. That's right. Yeah, so it's so dependent on their perspective, exactly. You tell people the stories they already tell themselves. That's number one. That's the first rule. You got to tell yourself the story first, and then we interject. And then we say, but our story will make your life better. We'll raise your status. Oh, no, we're selling that capitalist dream right back to them. Actually, you know no. what? I, I, read a, um, I, I read a lot. This actually really upset me, a book I read. He went in and, and he talked about capitalism in America. And he basically said that American capitalism, they create social change through products. Yeah. That Americans yeah. identify social change through the products they buy, that commodities with added meaning to them, like Nike, mm -hmm. pair of Nike shoes with Michael Jordan attached to it can change things for a lot of people in America and how they're perceived yeah, that fits with, um, oh my God, I wish I could remember her name, but she was a filmmaker who famously in the 90s spent time photographing and filming the children of wealthy people in LA. Um, and then she did, uh, I think it's called American Wealth or maybe it's Generation Wealth is the name of the documentary and she filmed it. And it is people who have a lot of, yeah, that material wealth, because it's not just about money. It's about the class signifiers and wealth signifiers and that's really wrapped up in the commodities that people use and how they represent themselves with whatever they buy right like as a species are we stuck to statistics are we stuck to the basic primary instincts of our species back from when we were on the savannah but ultimately we either have fear responses desire responses and ultimately it's a marketer's job to play to any of them but mm -hmm. unfortunately, we as a species will always respond to them. So you as a marketer got to get really, really good at playing into one of those desires or fears. 
and the media journalists do it all the time they don't have a job if they don't know how to play on your fears that's very true Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with writers in what you're telling most things that become popular to us are essentially a repackaging or regurgitation of a narrative that we're already really familiar with especially culturally people who become famous or successful, they learn how to repackage it in a way that is appealing, but still familiar enough that it resonates, right? And people will say, I don't understand, like this just, it just feels like this when I read it, because it is, it's evoking an emotional response. It has less to do with, you know, your the breadth of your vocabulary or the complexity of the intellectual ideas you're advancing and more about the core resonance at an emotional level, right? Which is playing to those instinctive like flight or fight or fear or desire responses. Even the number of stories we have in society is very limited. The core stories of the life and the archetype of the lives you live, how many of there are there actually? And there's not that many. Seven. That's, I was reading that there are seven stories that are told and every story that's ever told is one of those seven stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a thing, especially as writers. That's one of the, like the first things that they show you is all these like tools of like how to categorize different stories and they're all given different names, but essentially they work against the same templates. And then you have like the master story or the hero's journey as mm-hmm. put forth by Joseph Campbell. We could go on at length. Okay. Mike. Ah, Joseph. Okay. Last words. What do you want people to know or to take away, like if you could pump somebody up, if you're talking to them about their own creative pursuit, I want your like best pep talk. Oh my gosh. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think I got one here. How do I, how do I put this lightly um, without, without going on a tangent? In your creative pursuits and whatever you're making, do not get caught up in thinking that you have to make a company or a business or a startup. Delete that from your mind immediately. Realize, this is for people that are interested in doing this kind of thing. Realize that every game is an institution. Even the world of startups is an institution, especially when you start a startup to go and pursue investors, you're following an institution. I mean, you gotta play by its rules and by its games. There's no reason for this. Don't go into something, unless you're truly, truly talented and you know how to manipulate those systems and play and poke their strings. Don't do something because everybody else is doing it or because you think you have to make a startup or a business or... I think people are simply hungry for authenticity. Yeah. 100%. We've talked about that so much on this podcast. Yeah. Ad nauseum. The way that companies are marketed is you can already see that the traditional way is dead. That's why they're on social media. Your smart marketers do thirst traps. Geo. Oh my god! <laughs> we were just—we literally just—we <laughs> were just talking about this. The uh, silent sinkhole strikes the again. Silent sinkhole, man. For fuck's sakes, it's the truth. People, when people say to me like, "Oh my god, like TikTok is so good for marketing," and at first I was like, "What the fuck? How the fuck is this good for marketing?" <laughs> And then like, I've looked at TikTok and I'm like, oh, I get it. It's just asses and- <laughs> But that's that desire response, okay? We're simple. Yeah, th- We're exactly. We're beings. It, yeah. It's 100%. Yeah, show your ass on Instagram. Or- <laughs> okay, that's, we're not advocating for that. No, no, no. <laughs> Mike, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us tonight yeah. and take us on a tour of your backyard yeah. and your sunroom, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I like pretending that I live somewhere nice and temperate. 
it'd be pretty hot in Edmonton right now, right? Uh, no, it's not. We had our requisite week of plus 30 weather. And by week, I mean five days. And now we're seeing overnight lows of like eight and nine already. And it's oh just getting colder. Oh, no. It's all good. It's seasons, man. I, I remember even in Timmins, it actually, it was like we were playing um, ball, like um, softball, like mm-hmm. a company softball event. And it was the like very end of September. Mm-hmm. We started on like September 30th and the game ended October 1st. It started snowing right on October yeah. 1st. Yes. And then it didn't stop. That's like Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm glad you got out for both our sakes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've been everywhere. <laughs> Seriously, you've been, <laughs> you have been everywhere. <laughs> it's, but it's also just your perspective is really different than a lot of people, as Gio said, that we've talked to on the podcast. So it's interesting because it engages us in a different way and challenges mm-hmm. us to think about things that are different. And like you talked about and touched on earlier in our conversation, there are so many things that we kind of take for granted just because of the way that we were raised and the communities that we come up in and you know, like securing that middle-class lifestyle even becomes the dream and you don't realize that there are so many other options and there are so many ways yeah. to to enter and exit the way that you choose. And it's, it's nice to like open that up for people. I hope, you know, whoever listens, they just start going crazy and just start making crazy stuff. Thanks, Mike. That was awesome. It was really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. So thanks for listening to me. And to me... And if you have any burning questions or if you have any startup ideas that you want to send our way or Michael's way, <laughs> our, our inboxes are open. So please email us at listen to me podcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, please let us know. Uh, it helps us so much when you rate the podcast and you subscribe. And we read all of the comments, especially if you DM them to us. They touch the cold cockles of our dead hearts Mm, i love cockles (laughs) (laughs) and as always music in this episode is graciously provided by audionautics.com goodbye bye everyone goodbye